welcome to the reading of the Sioux City Journal newspaper for Wednesday, December the 28th, and I'm your reader, Kevin Boucher. Headline, ransomware attacks hit Iowa schools, including Davenport, although the public is often left in the dark. And this article was written by reporter Maggie Bayshore of the Sioux City Journal. In the summer of 2019, uh, school superintendent Devin Ambre learned the Glenwood District in Mills County, Iowa, was being held hostage by foreign ransomware attackers. The hackers encrypted student data that included schedules, contact information, and demographic information, making it inaccessible to the school's administrators, Ambre said. The hackers demanded $130,000 worth of cryptocurrency from the school district to unlock the data. Glenwood paid $10,000 in ransom. There was really nothing we could do on our end, Embre said. The 2019 Glenwood attack was one of the first known examples of a surge in ransomware attacks on Iowa schools. And while Glenwood chose to publicly acknowledge it, many schools targeted by cyber criminals do not. Most ransomware attacks go unreported and unacknowledged, and communities are often left in the dark about what may have happened to their private information and their taxpayer dollars also. When the Davenport School District was targeted in September, school officials said that they were also dealing with a problem with server glitches, and they thought the problems were glitches on the district's internet, phone, and email systems. Later in the month, those signs of a cyber attack invasion became more evident, but the district declared that it had thwarted an attack. A data extortion group known as Kauerkraut has since claimed to have stolen huge amounts of personal data from the Davenport district. Although the attack first was detected in early September, state officials were not notified of the breach until the end of October. And in early November, a district spokesman first acknowledged the hackers had demanded a ransom, but the district did not pay. Increased ransomware attacks bring steep insurance costs, rigorous requirements to qualify for insurance, and in some cases, disruptions in students' education. Aaron Warner, the CEO of ProCircular, a cybersecurity firm in Coraville, said the hackers usually demand between $2 million and $10 million in ransom from larger school districts. I would say that every school is attacked in one way or another every single day. And that is an exact quote from David Fringer. He is the executive director of information technology at Green Hills Area Education Association. The larger schools are very appealing targets, he says, because they have more money than the smaller districts, although the smaller ones are easier to attack. He said ransomware groups demand lower amounts from smaller schools, but attack more of them to collect an amount equivalent to what could be collected from one larger school. 
Recent ransomware attacks on Iowa schools include those in 2022 that hit the Davenport, Cedar Rapids, and Linmar districts. But unlike Glenwood, these schools did not voluntarily disclose details of their ransomware attacks, including how much ransom was paid to prevent sensitive information from being leaked to the public and beyond. The Lindmar School District initially described its ransomware attack in late July of 2022 as, quote, technical difficulties with the school's servers. However, a leaked image of one district computer revealed that the school's files had been encrypted by a ransomware group known as Vice Society, which wrote on its website that it would release the school's important documents photographs, and databases to the dark web. An employee with Lynn Marr, who spoke for this story with the promise of anonymity in order to protect the person's job, said the school's administration continued to refer to the attack as a computer issue after the leaked image circulated in various news organizations. The unnamed employee said Lynn Marr did not notify faculty that their personal data was impacted until months later. They didn't get notified until October the 10th, 2022. The employee provided for this story images of an email sent from the superintendent to staff on October the 10th. The email said, an extensive investigation into the July event indicated that the employee data may have been impacted, but student data was not. The email said that anyone whose data was affected was to receive a letter with additional information about the event and an offer to free credit monitoring. But the school district at Linmar, they had a failure, and their failure to publicly acknowledge their ransomware attack is consistent with the responses of other targeted school districts. The Cedar Rapids Community School District informed parents that ransomware was paid, but has not disclosed the amount. The ransomware attack on the Davenport Community School District was made public by the criminal group known as Karakurt in a post on the dark web where it threatened to release students' personal information online. And Fringer said that schools are advised to handle ransomware attacks privately to prevent further targeting by cyber criminals. It is the belief of the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security that once the who and how got out about cyber incidents, it encourages other attacks, he said. Others, however, argue that the school's secretive handling of the attacks just simply fuels more skepticism. Randy Evans, the executive director of the Iowa Freedom of Information Council, that's a nonprofit group that advocates for open government, is calling for schools to disclose ransomware attacks and payment amounts. Government entities belong to the public and not to government officials, Evans said, referring to the Cedar Rapids district attack. And the owners of the Cedar Rapids school district, they ought to know. Did they pay a ransom? 
How much did they pay? And what assurances do they have that the problem is resolved? As it stands now, according to Iowa law, schools are required to notify the Attorney General's Consumer Protection Division of a security breach affecting at least 500 Iowa residents within five business days after notifying the affected people. However, delays in notifying these affected people are legally permitted if the notification would interfere with a law enforcement agency's criminal investigation. Evans said that Iowa's open records law allows public records dealing with cybersecurity to be kept confidential. But he said that he's concerned that the public does not understand the magnitude of the problem and noted that the Cedar Rapids and Davenport school districts are Iowa's second and fourth largest school districts. If any of these institutions had the resources, it would be the largest ones. Those small school districts, they are the ones that are really sort of out there on their own, Evans said. But a few precautions do exist for the schools. In addition to carrying good insurance, both Warner and Fringer emphasized the importance of training school faculty. Fringer said the Iowa Office of the Chief Information Officer has been a great resource for schools that he works with, but that demand for training is too high for the office to keep up. They have some great programs and training, but they are also understaffed and underfunded, he said. Sometimes, if you ask them for help, they schedule you 12 to 18 months out. And Fringer said that Iowa's nine area education agencies can help schools identify threats and that, in his experience, they usually can respond to schools' questions within a day. He's also said that schools can use a federal E-rate program to purchase discounted network hardware, such as firewalls, that act as barriers between a private network and the public Internet. But despite these measures, Fringer said that being the victim of a ransomware attack can be unavoidable. You can drive really, really carefully, but if someone hits you, it's still an accident. Well, the same is true in the cyber world. You can be really, really safe, and then somebody hits you. And that uh, was written by a couple of reporters, Vivian Guo and McKenna Mum. They also contributed to this story, which was produced as a part of a University of Iowa School of Journalism and Mass Communications reporting project, Olivia Allen of the Quad City Times newspaper also contributed to this article. And the headline for this next article, Quad City Schools Respond to Historic Nationwide Learning Losses in Math and Reading. And this article was written by reporter Olivia Allen. Local school districts have worked to address nationwide academic slides and other achievement gaps through measures like increased interventions and reimagining frameworks for academic support. To several Quad City school districts, this decline was evident, particularly in math, 
The NAEP assesses math and reading scores every two years in its The Nation's Report Card, sampling fourth and eighth grade data to provide a broad overview of national and statewide trends, also considered fa- considering factors such as students and their demographics. And this is an overview of the, na- uh, the Nation's Report Card findings for Iowa and Illinois. In Iowa, the average math score for fourth graders was 240, which is five points above the nationwide average for public school students and one point above the average score compared to 2019. The average reading score for fourth graders was 218, two points above the nationwide average for public school students and three points below the average score in 2019. The average math score for 8th graders was 277 in Iowa, four points above the nationwide average for public school students, and five points below the average score in 2019. And also in Iowa, the average reading score for 8th graders was 260, one point above the nationwide average for public school students and two points below the average score in 2019. In Illinois, the average math score for fourth graders was 237, two points above the nationwide average. The average reading score for fourth graders, 218, two points above the nationwide average for public school students. The average math score for eighth graders was 275, two points above the nationwide average. And in Illinois, the average reading score for eighth graders, 262, three points above the nationwide average for public schools. And here is the latest court report from Woodbury County as compiled and reported by reporter Nick Hightrek before Judge Patrick Tott. David Alvarado, 39, of Sioux City, charged with second-degree theft and convicted on two counts. He was sentenced on December the 19th, five years prison suspended and two years probation. And the headline for this next article, Promenade owners resume upgrade all seats are now recliners. And this article was written by reporter Mason Doctor, Sioux City. A multi-phase program of refurbishments of the Promenade Cinema begun several years ago, but paused at the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, has now resumed. All of the available seats in Sioux City's downtown theater are now recliners. And of course, being able to watch a movie in recliners is a relatively recent industry standard. And finishing touches are being applied to other parts of the building. And uh, the owners say that either by late spring or the summer of 2023, the theater should at long last resemble what the Barstow family, its owners, had envisioned for it when the improvement project began more than four years ago. As of 2019, the four largest of the theater's auditoriums had gotten recliners, with plans in place to upgrade the seats in the remainder of the auditoriums at some point in the future. 
Then a pandemic came along and decimated movie attendance. COVID just kind of threw off a lot of the timing and everything going on there, said Mike Barstow, vice president of Omaha-based Main Street Theaters, which owns the Promenade. So we were able to kind of resume and bundled up on a few more things. In October, contractors began the process of replacing the seats in the remaining eight auditoriums at the theater with new heated push-button controlled recliners with cup holders in each armrest. The other two auditoriums will not be in use for the time being. These commodious recliner seats take up far more space on a per-seat basis than the older, more compact seating that once dominated all movie theaters. But patrons sitting adjacent to one another had to jockey for a single, narrow, hard armrest adjacent to one another. And the legroom in the old seats was limited by the backs of the row of seats in the front and the legs of the adjoining person. This new seating style gives moviegoers ample personal space. But the downside, of course, inevitably, this resulted a drastic reduction in seating capacity by about 40%, give or take. But the Promenade, which opened in 2004, had relatively spacious auditoriums to begin with, so there are still quite a few seats. The eight auditoriums that got new heated recliners have roughly 500 seats between them. In all, the Promenade's 12 in-use auditoriums have about a 1,000 seats. It's all a part of an industry-wide trend of upgrading the movie-going experience as theaters face fierce competition from an old rival, the private residential living room, where the breadth and convenience of entertainment options has exploded over the course of several decades. Out went the narrow seats that didn't recline and were only heated by the bodies sitting in them, and in came uh, concession stand options that were unheard of 20 years ago, and other experience-oriented amenities like arcade video games. The video games could help attract patrons from the promenade's next-door neighbor, the popular Marto Brewing Company, which Barstow described as a great neighbor, for us to have, but by no means do you need to have a ticket to a movie or anything, Barstow said of the video games. If you're hanging out over at Marto and you want to break away for a minute and go challenge your buddy to a game next door, you're welcome to come in and do it. And the headline for this next article from the December 28th Sioux City Journal, Sioux City Journal's 2022 Newsmaker of the Year, Mike Wells. And this article was written by reporter Jared McNett. Even before the calendar rolled over to December, 2022 was a busy time for Mike Wells, the journal's officially nominated and accepted 2022 Newsmaker of the Year. When the year began, Wells, the CEO of the second largest ice cream maker in the United States, he sat as the board chair for something called the Siouxland Initiative, 
A 34-year-old division of the Siouxland Chamber of Commerce intently focused on economic development. During his two-year tenure, which began during the pandemic, Wells said that he and other business leaders pushed to focus not just on job creation, but on quality of life improvements to recruit and retain workers. COVID did a great thing for society, Wells said in a December interview with the journal. And as large employers, we figured out that the people were not our most important assets. People were just the most important thing, period, in our businesses. And we had an opportunity to really, really focus on that. Now, one outgrowth of that shift in priorities is the Plywood Trail. That's a bike route, which with the Siouxland Regional Trail System will ultimately help connect Sergeant Bluff, Sioux City, Merrill, and Lamars. And Wells has been a major proponent of the interrelated plans, and in June, the Trail System Project received a $7 million grant from the state of Iowa. He says trail systems connect communities. Creating that pathway is not only for economic development, but also for quality of life and health. A month before, in May, Wells's company, the maker of Blue Bunny, Blue Ribbon Classics, Bomb Pop, and Halo Top ice cream products, got $6.3 million in high-quality jobs program tax credits from the Iowa Economic Development Authority. And that news came with word that the 109-year-old Lamars-based frozen treat maker would effort a $70 million capital investment project to add six new lines at one local plant and replace five lines at another plant. And by the business's own count, it finished the work in about 60 days per a state contract. Are you ready for this? The project was expected to create 135 new jobs, and out of those jobs, 82 of those jobs were to pay at least $23.94 an hour. And when asked, Wells, what are you going to do now? Well, within Lamar's, the 63-year-old said, that'll mean, among other things, taking over as the chair of the Lamar's Chamber of Commerce. I'm going to have an opportunity to kind of put my time and my efforts into something that's meant a lot to me, Wells said. And as for something such as the Siouxland Initiative, Wells' commitment to selling the region to present and future residents, well, his commitment has not abated. I think our people make a significant difference, he said, and I'm always amazed when outsiders from our community come and spend time here. And they say that people are so nice. And it goes beyond Midwest nice. It's people who care. The Siouxland community, he says, always rises to the occasion and takes care of its own and invites folks to come into the area. And when, when he was asked what success will look like in 2023, Wells paused before reiterating his relationship with his wife, with the company, and with the town that he has such a fervor for. He said, quote, 
I would say success would be an undisrupted Wells business. It's a community that embraces the new ownership here at Wells, and it's an opportunity for my wife Cheryl and me to share our gifts and our talents and our resources in a way that's meaningful for our broader community and to sit here a year from now and feel as good about nine, and feel as good about 2023 as we did about 2022. Again, Mike Wells, CEO of Wells Enterprises, is the Sioux City Journal's Man of the Year. Article written by reporter Jared McNett. Headline for this next article, Lincoln man caught with 114 grams of meth charged with two felonies, police say. And this article was written by the Lincoln Journal Star newspaper. A 39-year-old Lincoln man has been charged with two felonies after investigators found 114 grams of suspected methamphetamine in his pockets while executing a search warrant recently, police say in court records. Sean Robinson was sitting in his car in a North Lincoln parking lot when investigators detained him at around 6.30 p.m. on Tuesday afternoon after a Lancaster County Court judge signed a search warrant for Robinson's car and house, Lincoln Police Investigator Samuel Wyarda said in the affidavit for his arrest. Amid a search of Robinson's pockets, police found four baggies of suspected meth, weighing a total of 114 grams, according to the affidavit. Police also found $1,111 in cash on the 39-year-old. Robinson was arrested, taken to the LPD's headquarters, and later to the Lancaster County Jail, where he is currently being held on a $150,000 percentage bond. And the headline for this next article, Lincoln Counselor Accused of Medicaid Fraud. This story was written by the Lincoln Journal Star newspaper. A Lincoln mental health counselor has been charged with Medicaid fraud. A warrant was issued for Michael Keaty's arrest on Wednesday on the felony charge. In court documents, investigator Tim Lordino of the Medicaid Fraud and Patient Abuse Unit of the Attorney General's Office said Keaty enrolled with Nebraska Medicaid and received payments between December 15th and 2017 and March 12th of 2021. After agreeing not to submit claims for professional mental health services as a part of a settlement agreement in 2015. Kitty is a licensed independent mental health provider as well as a licensed marriage and family therapist. Lordito alleges Kitty knew about the 2015 settlement which he signed yet signed up to become a Nebraska Medicaid provider and saw Medicaid clients contracted through private subcontractors for the state of Nebraska at United Healthcare, WellCare of Nebraska, and Nebraska Total Care. And he said an investigation showed the counselor did not tell the directors of companies that he was not allowed to bill Medicaid. 
In all, Lordino said Nebraska Medicaid paid Keedy just over $60,000 in federal money between 2018 and July of 2021. And the headline for this next article, Doan Scholarship Will Help Low-Income Students Pursue STEM Fields. And this newspaper article was written by Chris Dunker, who is a reporter of the Lincoln Journal-Star newspaper. A $1.5 million grant from the National Science Foundation will fund scholarships and paid research opportunities to Doan University students who are pursuing careers in the STEM fields. The Sustaining Undergraduate Classroom and Career Excellence for STEM Students program, acronym SUCCESS, will offer assistance to academically talented students with unmet financial need. Chris Williams, an associate professor of mathematics and the director of institutional effectiveness at Doan, said the program will help diversify and create a more equitable STEM community. You are listening to the reading of the Sioux City Journal newspaper dated Wednesday, December the 28th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind, and now let's turn to today's obituaries. Yvonne G. Cookie Dora, 77, died on Monday, December 19th. Waterbury Funeral Service of Sioux City is in charge of arrangements. Joyce Ann Hutton, 84, of Sioux City, passed away on Wednesday, December 21st at a local hospital. Meyer Brothers Colonial Chapel is in charge of the arrangement. She was born February 17, 1938 in Sioux City, and she was the daughter of Walter and Agnes Walston Stussy. She graduated from Lamar's High School in 1956. On June 6, 1958, jo- uh, Joyce married Charles Al Hutton at Trinity Lutheran Church. Audrey Jensen, 84, of Lawton, Iowa, died on December 18, 2022. Community Presbyterian Church in Lawton will be the the site for the family to get together. There will be a private burial at a later date. Arrangements for Audrey Jensen are with Waterbury Funeral Service of Sioux City, Iowa. Robert C. Bob Jones, Jr., 73, died on Thursday, December 22nd. Arrangements are with Gosler Funeral Home and Monuments in Anawa, Iowa. Michael J. Mike Jordan, 65, of Sioux City, passed away on Wednesday, December 21st, following a courageous battle with ALS. There will be a memorial service at 10.30 in the morning uh, next Tuesday. Meyer Brothers Morningside Chapel is in charge of arrangements. Mike was born December 4, 1957, in Sioux City. He was the son of William and Joan Bolzak Jordan. Senior Mike was a lifelong Sioux City resident. 
He attended St. Francis and St. Joseph grade schools and graduated from Healand High School in 1976 and then attended Western Iowa Tech. On June 11, 1977, Mike married Sandy Sokolowski at St. Francis Catholic Church in Sioux City, Iowa. He is survived by his wife, Sandy Jordan of Sioux City, son Matt Jordan and Ariel of Sioux City, daughter Katie Husky, Taylor of Seattle, Washington, grandchildren Emma Jordan and Skyler, father William Jordan Sr., and brother William Jordan Jr. He is also survived by nieces and nephews. Mike was preceded in death by his mother, Joan Jordan, and by a brother, Mark uh, Mark Jordan. Memorials may be directed to the ALS Foundation or St. Croix Hospice. Vernice J. Christensen Kingsbury of Ponca, who recently turned 100 years old, passed away peacefully in the hands of her Savior at Regency Square Assisted Living in South Sioux City on Tuesday, December 20th of 2022. Moore Funeral Home in Ponca is in charge of arrangements. Vernice was born in Irene, South Dakota on December 8, 1922. Her parents were Herbert and Beryl Moe Christensen. She graduated from Howarden High School in Iowa. She received her teacher's certificate from Morningside College in Sioux City, and she taught school in both Wakefield and Ponca, Nebraska. She was married on her family's farm in Howarden on June 13, 1944, to Francis A. Kingsbury of Ponca. Vernice and Francis Fran celebrated their 77th wedding anniversary back on June 13, 2021. They lived in their Ponca home for 75 years following Fran's 1946 return from Europe after World War II. They had three children, James and John Kingsbury and Cynthia J. McManus. Her mind remained sharp, and she was was able to text on her ever-handy cell phone until just a few days prior to reaching 100 years old. Vernice will be greatly missed by her community and family members. She is survived by her two sons and their wives, Jim and Gwen Kingsbury of Ponca, and John and Myra Kingsbury of Ponca, daughter Cindy and her husband Larry McManus of Staunton, Wisconsin, four grandchildren and their spouses Chris and Abby Kingsbury of Ponca, Greg and Sarah Beth McManus, Sarah Jean and Josh Hosh, and Kristen and Brad Horst, all of Oregon, Wisconsin. She is also survived by 17 great-grandchildren, Logan, Ashlyn, Carter, Sam, Henry, and Archie of Ponca, Haley, Lydia, Wyatt, and Luke of Oregon, Isabella, Alexis, Jackson, and Mackenzie of Oregon, and Sadie, Felicity, and Ben of Oregon, 
Sister-in-law Lovis Sprugel of Kansas City, Missouri, and also survived by many nieces and nephews. She was preceded in death by her husband of 77 years, Francis. Her parents, Herbert and Beryl Christensen, father and mother-in-law, Francis R. and Kathinka Kingsbury, brother Maynard Christensen, sister-in-law Grace Christensen, sister Leola Bushmer, brothers-in-law Dr. Alex Bushmer and Johnny Sprugel, and granddaughter Jenny. In lieu of flowers, memorials can be directed to the community's Better Ponca Foundation, Incorporated, for the Community Improvement Endowment Fund at P.O. Box 570, Ponca, Nebraska. Ellen Francis Clashen of Yankton, South Dakota, formerly of Marcus, Iowa, 94, died on Thursday, December 22nd. Arrangements are with Ernest Johnson Funeral Home, home of Marcus. Margaret Lucille Mall of Turin, Iowa, 99 years old, died on Wednesday, December 21st. Arrangements are with Gossler Funeral Home and Monuments in Onawa, Iowa. Charles K. Chuck McWilliam, 75, of Sioux City, was taken from his loved ones way too soon on Tuesday, December 20th. The Becker Hunt Funeral Home is in charge of arrangement. Chuck was born April 4, 1947 in Sioux City to Randall Keith and Evelyn Gibble McWilliams. He graduated from Heelan High School and completed many trade school courses on engines of all kinds and welding. He was united in marriage to Joan Johnson on November 18, 1972 at St. Michael's Church in South Sioux City. Chuck and Joan had resided in rural Dakota City all of their married life, and Chuck owned and operated McWilliams Machine Shop from 1974 until his retirement in 2010. He is survived by his wife, Joan McWilliams of Dakota City, three children, Becky McWilliams of Sioux City, Brad and Sarah McWilliams, and Zach McWilliams both of Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Four grandchildren, Cassie and Jeremy Sammons of Omaha, Nebraska. Tom and T.J. Emily Cobb of South Sioux City. He is also survived by Jordan Luckle of Anton, Iowa and Kiari McWilliams of Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Brother, Dave and Gail McWilliams of Sioux City. Two sisters, Debbie and Phil Dorr of Comano Island, Washington, and Carrie McWilliams of Anthon. He is also uh, survived by many nieces and nephews and in-laws that will miss his teasing. He was preceded in death by his parents. His sister, June DeVries, and three nephews, Tom, Donnie, and Tommy. Chuck will be missed by all who knew him. He did have the gift of gab and could talk to anyone, and he did, and his passing creates a hole in our hearts that 
cannot be mended. Joanne E. Pruel, 88, of Moville, passed away on December 17th at her residence, surrounded by her family. Gossler Funeral Home of Anawa, Iowa, is in charge of arrangements. Joanne Evelyn was born September 3, 1934, in Salix, Iowa. She was the daughter of Joseph and Daisy Kane Lucier. She worked for IPS for many years. Joanne and Wayne F. Pruel were united in marriage on November 19, 1953, in Sergeant Bluff. Into this union, two children were born, Janine and Wade. The couple farmed in Monona, Plymouth, and Woodbury counties. They farmed near Moville since 1970. She is survived by her son Wade and Jennifer Pruel of Moville, five grandchildren, Megan and Josh Ebert, Kiara and Dakota Orman, Heaven, significant other Adam Voss, Pruel, Shannon Platzek and Trevor Platzek. She is also survived by six great-grandchildren, Mackenzie DeCock, Jera, Easton, Braley, and Stetson Ebert, and Evelyn Orman. Also survived by a sister, Dorothy and Edward Lamoureux, and numerous nieces, nephews, cousins, and other relatives, and many, many friends. She was preceded in death by her husband in 2009, Wayne Pruel, parents Joseph and Daisy Kane Lucier, daughter Janine Pruel Platzek in 2015, and nephew Dennis Lamoureux. And now turning to the opinion page of the December 28th Sioux City Journal, here is a column by uh, columnist Dan Lee. As we recently paused to celebrate the holiday season, I thought I might share with you some seldom known facts about Christmas. The first of these is that the fact is Jesus was not born on Christmas Day. Now I know that sounds like hearsay, and in the eyes of some it might be. From the earliest days of Christianity, Easter was an important part of the church year. However, the birth of Jesus was not celebrated until the 4th century, and by then no one knew exactly when Jesus was born. The biblical stories about the birth of Jesus in Matthew and Luke do not indicate when Jesus was born, although there is a hint as to when it might have been in Luke 2, which makes a reference to shepherds, quote, keeping watch over their flocks by night. During the winter months, sheep were kept in pens, which tended to gather, get rather mucky. And when lambing time came, shepherds would take their flocks out to open fields, which was a far better place for, for ewes to give birth to the lambs. Now, this typically happened in early spring, thus the reference to shepherds keeping watch over their flocks by night suggests that Jesus could have been born in March or even early April. So how did the birth of Jesus, our Savior, come to be celebrated on December 25th? Well, many scholars believe that December 25th was chosen to celebrate the birth of Jesus because late December was when Saturnalia, 
the merriest of all Roman holidays was celebrated. Saturnalia featured banquets, gift-giving, and many other activities that folks greatly enjoyed. But the fact that Jesus was probably not born on December the 25th in no way diminishes the beauty of this Christmas story. The birth of Jesus in very humble surroundings with peace and goodwill towards all people is what we should always keep in our hearts. Should we follow the lead of the joyless Puritans and not have any Christmas parties? No, not at all. Christmas parties, when done in a responsible manner, are an important part of the holiday season. And may you and your family have a wonderfully joyous holiday season. And again, that was written by columnist and writer Dan Lee. He is a regular columnist, and he is the Marion Taft Cannon Professor in the Humanities at Augustana University. Hmm. And the headline for this next uh, opinion piece, this was written by Darcy Simmerusty. Divisive polarizing attacks on public schools hurt students and get in the way of learning. I've been a member of a local school board ever since my daughters, now 11th graders, were in second grade. And in that time, I've been involved in education policy discussions at the local, state, and national levels on issues such as the rights of LGBTQ students, standardized testing, and the privatization of public education. And the rise of the so-called parental rights movement in public education has been one of the thorniest, most perplexing issues I've encountered. Of course, parents certainly play a crucial role in the education of their children. Who would dare argue that they don't? But heavily funded, right-leaning parent groups such as Moms for Liberty have unleashed a juggernaut of opposition to critical race theory, LGBTQ rights, a social-emotional learning, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so now it's become imperative that we have an honest discussion about how much, say, parents should have in what is or what is not taught in public school. My school district, unlike many, is racially, ethnically, and socioeconomically diverse, with 31 languages spoken in the homes of my students. Education, educating such a diverse student body presents many challenges and requires a nuanced approach to policy and practice to ensure that all students have equal opportunities to learn, thrive, and grow. While it is easy for school leaders to say that they embrace diversity, equity, and inclusion, it's also far too challenging to implement policies promoting all of these principles. I've spent my time on the school board helping to develop systems that ensure decisions are made collaboratively and with as many voices involved as possible. Now this means making space not only for administrators, teachers, parents, and students, but also ensuring that historically marginalized groups are represented. 
Decisions that affect students should never be based on the whims of the most privileged or powerful and not on the voice of the loudest. But the latter has become the hallmark of parental rights activists. They attend meeting after meeting, berating, shouting down, and they've even made death threats against members of school boards all across the country. During the pandemic, battles over masking erupted at podiums at far too many school board meetings across the country and quickly morphed into demands to ban books, censor curriculum, and muzzle woke teachers that parents accuse of grooming their children. In the 2022 midterm elections just recently, parental rights activists were on the ballot in many states. With the support and the endorsement of Moms for Liberty, they ran campaigns to become school board members in districts in red, blue, and purple states. Moms for Liberty operates county chapters that aims to serve as watchdogs all over 13,000 school districts. The anti-woke agenda espoused by Moms for Liberty and endorsed by school board candidates had the greatest success in Florida, where Florida Governor Ron DeSantis proudly declared that his state was, quote, where the woke goes to die. But in many other parts of the country, parental rights candidates lost their elections, and even conservative political operatives acknowledging that many of the campaigns were just too hyperbolic. Chaos has already erupted in several districts where they succeeded in promoting major majorities, with newly formed inexperienced boards firing superintendents or forcing them to resign. One school board in this country voted to ban the teaching of critical race theory just hours after being sworn in. After a decade of experience as a school board member, one thing that I can say for sure is that the majority of parents, teachers, and community members do not respond well to instability and disruption in their public schools. And when school boards run amok and rash decisions make headlines, communities work quickly to restore calm. And if parental rights school boards continue to govern recklessly, they will undoubtedly face a backlash from the voters. And in conclusion, creating and implementing sound school policies and practices that respect and affirm all students requires collaboration. It does not allow for the divisive, polarizing rhetoric and the impetuous, rash decision-making that have become the calling cards of the so-called parental rights movement, the rhetoric has to be toned down. And that opinion piece uh, was written by Darcy Simarusti. Simarusti served as a member of the Highland Park, New Jersey School Board from 2013 to 2022. She is the communications director for the Network of Public Education, the Network of Publication is a nonprofit that strives to promote and improve schools. 
And turning now to sports from the Sioux City Journal headline, Murray absence has strengthened the Hawkeye basketball team. And this article was written by sports reporter Steve Batterson. As Chris Murray moves closer for a return to action for the Iowa basketball team, well, perhaps as soon as Thursday's game against Nebraska, other Hawkeyes have grown in his absence. The lower leg injury, which has kept Murray off the court since December the 6th, has provided teammates with an opportunity to step forward and step up their games. We're all looking forward to having Chris back on the floor, but when he has not been on the floor, we've had to play team basketball, and it's a good thing for our team, adjusting to the differences. That's a quote from Iowa forward Philip Rabraka. The Hawkeyes had little choice when Murray exited the lineup. The junior had been dominant during the opening weeks of the season, averaging 19.4 points and 10.1 rebounds in the eight starts that he made for Iowa. When he showed up for a December 8th game against Iowa State with his left foot in a walking boot, things changed and have continued to evolve over the nearly three weeks that the Hawkeyes have been without their leading scorer and rebounder. And turning back now to news, headline, Heritage Foundation seeks to buy Little Sioux Scout Ranch. And this article was written by reporter Nick Hytrek. Rarely does the chance to preserve more than a thousand acre of pristine Los Hills wilderness presents itself. Well, the Iowa Natural Heritage Foundation doesn't want to have that chance go by and hopes to finish off soon an effort to raise $2 million by the end of the year to exercise an option to buy the Little Sioux Scout Ranch. It's a big lift for us, but we decided to try to buy it. This is really a -a once-in-a-lifetime chance, the biggest purchase by size that we've ever done. And that's a quote from Joe Jajak. He is the Heritage Foundation's communications director. Located in southern Monoma County on the western slope of the Los Hills near Blencoe, the scout camp covers 1,800 acres of woodlands and prairie and includes a 20-acre lake and 25 miles of hiking trails. It's also home to several state-listed endangered and threatened plants and animals. If the purchase is completed, the Heritage Foundation would eventually open up the property, currently used only as a Boy Scout camp, to public uses like hiking, wilderness camping, bird watching, fishing, and other uses like hunting as well. Well, looks like that does it for today's reading of the Sioux City Journal newspaper, dated Wednesday, December the 28th. I'm your reader, Kevin Boucher, and you can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. Thanks for listening. (music) 